worked in her life and is working in her life and has transformed her journey. What an amazing young lady. She's just graduated from a program that has, uh, among other things, prepared her for what she has already embarked on doing. My understanding is she left this past week for Brazil. And on this journey, she is going down with a number of others who are part of a, both a prayer team and called into action as God might give them opportunity in Brazil, which is, I believe, the location of the finals for um, the, America, the um, World Cup soccer. And if you don't know this, my guess is some of you do, do, but if you don't know that often those large major world sporting events up the level of human trafficking that takes place in those particular locations. It's tragic but true. Jordan is going down there to be part of a prayer team and as God might lead an action team to step into those places where God might lead to be there over the course of the next three to six months. I hope some of you will take up her as a point of prayer this morning and in the weeks to come. It may be that you're connected with Jordan because you know her. It may be that you know the Fulcher family and so there's a connection in that fashion. It may be that you have longed to do some kind of a mission trip endeavor and have never had the opportunity to do so, why not participate in Jordan's by praying for her during these months? Or at least this morning. It may be that you bring with you some very heavy issues as well this morning. Things that are pressing in on you that have you concerned that uh, may be local, may be on the other side of the globe. It's amazing how praying for somebody else gives us a sense of God's presence in our own lives. So we're going to take a few moments and pray before we jump into the Word. Let God guide you as we pray together. We'll pause for a few moments of silence. My hope is that the Spirit will guide you as to how to pray. If praying is not part of your spiritual life at this point in time, Just in the silence, listen to how God might move your heart. Let's pray together. Our Lord, our Creator, our Savior, our Redeemer, our King. This morning we bring to you all of our prayers, our needs, our hopes, our confusion, 
our desire to understand the areas of pain, our successes. We bring it all to you. You've invited us into your presence. You've suggested that we come boldly and sometimes we come rather meekly. You say to come humbly and sometimes we come rather arrogantly. So this morning, Lord, would your spirit please simply help us to come to you in any fashion to ask for your guidance and help with the many needs that we have. You've asked us to express the desires of our heart and so I pray for the Chocolate family and for many like them who are facing transition this summer. Would your peace settle into their lives and provide wisdom for decisions that are made. Open up doors of opportunity. Help those who are in the midst of change realize that you've already gone ahead. You've already prepared a way. Your footprints lead the way. And Lord, for Jordan and for many others who this summer are working around the globe, many from our church on various trips and missions. We pray for protection. We pray for openness that they might be your voice and your hands and your feet, that they might enter into places where they can speak about the kingdom in ways that build up and encourage. In the same respect, Lord, may they learn. May they learn that you've already been at work long before any of them arrived. You have been building your kingdom and may they come back with great insight as to the wonderful ways in which you have been changing lives and transforming people. This morning and this week though, Lord, I do pray in particular for Jordan. May she sense a hundred people surrounding her with prayers so that she has strength that she never imagined. May she feel bolstered, supported, encouraged because her spirit is enlivened. May our prayers contribute to that, Lord. May she find you sufficient in everything she does. And this morning, Lord, as we dig into your word, may there be something here this morning that makes this week different because we've been in your presence. We've exalted your name and honored you. Thank you, Father. Amen. I would like, if I could, as we are zeroing in on 1 Corinthians chapters 12 and 13, if I could um, tell you where we're going, kind of like a professor who gives you the answers to the test before the test is handed out. There's no test at the end of this. But I, I want to tell you the trajectory here, the destination, because I think that somehow that might help you understand what we're trying to accomplish as we dig into the Word. So we're looking at these 
two chapters, we're going to spend a little bit of time trying to look at some of the images that Paul draws out and uses. So we're going to look at the images of uh, the body that he uses. We're going to talk about um, what he says about family. We're going to look at what it means, the defining characteristics of those who are part of the church family. And then I'm going to do my best to try and speak forth those two chapters, part of which you've already heard at the beginning of this. But my hope is that having done some of this background, when you hear it again, you might hear it in a fresh way that there might be something that resonates with you in your journey that might help you this week. And then once again, just like we started this, I'm going to close in prayer. Be some kind of an invitation that simply says, is there something here that's resonated with you and how God might work in your life? I'm going to pray. I'm going to use one of the altars to pray simply because this passage has dug deep in my life this week. It has pushed me, and I need help living it out. And so we're going to conclude with prayer, with an invitation that invites you into that place. So that's where we're headed. So, let's look at some of the things that were true of Paul's writing and the place where he wrote The context for this, Paul's writing to the church at Corinth, a really important trade center. A lot of trade routes came through Corinth. And so it carried with it a lot of um, cultural mix. But there is no doubt that the Roman Greco world, the culture, had huge influence over Paul and the church at Corinth. This influence came in a variety of ways, but it, we shouldn't immediately think that just because there weren't computers everywhere and the internet and TV that culture didn't flow out from certain centers of influence and create a real sense of connection to the dominant culture. It was as true then as it is now. The way politicians would talk, the laws that would be enacted, the teachers and where they would speak, those that would listen to what they had to say, and the hierarchy that existed within the culture all contributed to an understanding of how the society works, and if you were in that time, how you fit into that society. And it was dominated with a sense of hierarchy. Dividing lines, divisions that would help somebody understand their place in this system. So I'll give you just a few examples. In this culture, there was certainly a hierarchy between men, far more important than women, far less important. There's a hierarchy between adults, far more important, children, very unimportant. Even a hierarchy in age, older adults, far more important than younger adults. Citizens of the Roman Empire, dramatically more important than non-citizens. 
those who were free, all kinds of privileges greater than those who were servants or slaves. Education was another differentiation. Those who had education and those who did not, but probably that was more of a reflection of socioeconomic status than anything else because those who had higher socioeconomic status were able to be educated where those who did not have that resource had no opportunities for education. Those who were favored, those who were not favored. It's probably unfair to attribute that sense of hierarchy to that particular culture. Truth of the matter is, at least from my perspective, it's probably endemic to being human. Step out of that culture and move into another culture, and there are all kinds of hierarchical standards. Even when we try and move away from it, we move right back into it. I'm not sure I know the whole story, but I use this as an example because we are at least influenced in part by um, the uh, academic culture that is near this particular location. And my understanding is that early on, in an attempt to take away some of those socioeconomic hierarchies, it was determined that at graduation, for example, everyone would wear the same black robe to try and take away all of those markings that would come with particular status. But it seems to me that it didn't take long before that attempt gave way to a lot of distinctions. The colors of the stole that differentiated between various academic disciplines. The actual look of the stole on the back that determined the nature of the degree. The sleeves of the robe that would determine in their design whether or not it was somebody who was... Um, had a doctorate level degree, someone because of the way the sleeve is designed that had a master's level degree, or no markings on the sleeve, a baccalaureate degree. Even the head garb tells us how old the institution is from which you graduated. Seems to me all, at least at some level, markings of some kind of hierarchy. I'm not saying that that's wrong. It just seems like that's where we move when given to our own plans and our own determination. We establish the pecking order. Those who are in authority, those who are not. Those who have power, those who don't. Those who are in the know, those who are not in the know. So into that kind of culture... Paul speaks. The Roman Greco world would often use the image of the body as a way by which to differentiate levels of hierarchy within the system. So those who were in power were often depicted both in literature and political speeches, in teaching, in education. The head would be designated as those who were in power, the feet, those who were servants. Those who through manual labor had to contribute to the work of the body 
but it was very obvious the role that they played was subservient to the much more grandiose work of those who were in power, the head of the body. So when we read in chapter 12, Paul's description of the body of Christ, he takes the language of the culture and turns it inside out. Radically departs from what they would have heard uses that same language but translates it for the hearers to hear a new vision of what the church family ought to be like. Speaking of family, Paul uses that imagery as well. What are the distinguishing characteristics of what it means to be part of the family? Whether you've liked it or not, you've come to know some of my family just by virtue of using them as examples and stories. Whether they like it or not, probably, though I do try to get permission from my daughters before I say anything. My, my family, my family of origin, I have a father who's an only child and a mother who's the middle child of five. That in itself is a recipe for conflict in the home. And my mother very often is the one who has been called to try and accommodate some of the things, and I'm not saying any only child here would have some of those stereotypical characteristics, but my father had a few of them. And my mother learned how to work around that in ways that helped our family to function very well. I have... um, no aunts or uncles on my dad's side, though I had some wonderful great aunts and great uncles that uh, were important to me. I had, obviously, many more aunts and uncles on my mother's side. I have an uncle who was a medical missionary to New Guinea. Early on, when New Guinea had actually not yet been mapped out yet, and he worked in the jungles, and I loved in my adult years to have the opportunity to sit in some of his Bible studies and to hear him weave in some of the stories in the jungle at the makeshift clinic he would set up in some of those villages and how some of those very bizarre stories helped him to understand God's Word in fresh new ways. I have another uncle who has passed away, but he was um, on a ship in World War II. And the ship was shot down. And I remember the stories of my uncle staying afloat all night long until he was rescued the next day. Floating out in the middle of the ocean, no land in sight. I have two aunts. um, The younger sisters of my mother. Two very different pathways. Um... My one aunt uh, has given a good portion of her life to developing Bible study material. My other aunt, a wonderful artist um, who spent a good portion of her adult life homeless. These are some of the stories of my family. What makes me part of the family? Well, I grew up in their stories. I grew up hearing in their homes when we'd be there for holidays some of their 
reminiscings about their family of origin. And I found my story beginning to weave into their story in very interesting ways. There's no doubt that there are portions of my family journey that are dysfunctional. It's probably true for all of us. I I don't think it was quite as dysfunctional as the family I came across yesterday. Um, I went to get my hair cut, as some of you have already pointed out to me. Thank you very much. And I went to uh, the barber shop that I typically go to, and uh, there wasn't much business yesterday. Um, The two guys that were there were cutting each other's hair. So it was a relatively slow day in their shop. I showed up. There also happened to be um, a young woman there who was talking to them, and I quickly surmised, based on what I have picked up over the months having gone there, that this was the wife of the one who typically cuts my hair. And what I recall from previous years, even, is that when he came out of school, her parents, who live in Canada, put up the money to start this little storefront shop that he has had during this time. She greeted me when I came in, and then she left. I could tell that the atmosphere in the shop was a little tense. He beckoned me to come into the chair. I sat down. He put the thing around my neck and the thing drapes around. And then the phone call comes. And it's the wife. And he's not real pleased to hear the phone call. And in fact, he shifts into his native tongue, which I don't know if it was Mandarin or Pacific Rim language, but the only thing I recognized were the English swear words that were interspersed throughout the rest of the stuff that I didn't understand. Three calls came. He hung up twice on her. A good portion of the time he had the phone propped in his ear with scissors in his hand working on my hair. This is the result of their family. So like it or not, This is what happened yesterday. At the end, it was so sad. My heart broke. His closing line was, I've got to find some way to get out of this. I did my best to offer just a word of kindness. But sometimes, the reality of family is that division and hurt and pain and uh, tension begins to rub and friction begins to happen. And it pushes us in opposite directions. And sometimes, we can't even see a life preserver anywhere as we're swimming in the waters of the night. Paul is writing to a very dysfunctional family in Corinth. They're arguing, they're bickering, they're playing the game of hierarchy and power. They've pushed each other away and lobbied for position and jockeyed for the inside track. 
Selfishness has come through in a variety of ways. And Paul writes to them. You have to understand, if you're going to hear this passage well, one of Paul's resounding themes. A resounding theme for Paul is the confession that goes like this. Jesus is Lord. We find it beautifully expressed in Philippians chapter 2 and verses 9, 10, and 11. We hear that Jesus has given his life and God gives him the name that is above all names. So at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is Paul's confession, but all he is doing is repeating God's confession over Jesus. Jesus is Lord. It is the one thing that defines inclusion in Christ's church. That's it. Confession that Jesus is Lord. Because Paul's convinced that you can't say that apart from the Holy Spirit. And once you can say that in the power of the Holy Spirit, everything begins to change. It is what defines the body of Christ. Jesus is Lord. Then what comes out of that, Paul says, is love. And if you don't understand love, then you don't understand the confession of Jesus as Lord. Because that's the natural outpouring of what it means to let that be the confession of your life. He speaks to a church that at least appears from some of the things we read in this text. They have claimed their own allegiance. In some ways, they have claimed their own lordship. (laughs) Paul says, hold on a second. Let me teach you about what it means to be part of the body of Christ. And so, into those images an understanding of how the body was used as a descriptor in that culture to describe hierarchy. And Paul turns that language inside out to realize that for Paul, inclusion in the family of God is a confession that Jesus is Lord. And to recognize that there is not differentiation between us in this sense of hierarchy, but there is a recognition of the unity that comes in the family in the midst of all of this diversity. And that unifying characteristic is the characteristic of love. So I don't know how good I will do in depicting this passage, but sometimes I think It's received a little bit differently than if it's just read to you. Listen and see if there isn't anything here that resonates with your heart, that challenges the way you might live this week, that pushes you by the Spirit in directions that God might be calling you. 
So Paul says. Now, about spiritual gifts, brothers and sisters, I don't want you to be ignorant. You know that when you were pagans, you were influenced or led astray to mute idols. Therefore, I want you to know that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God can say the words, Jesus be cursed. But conversely, no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except through the power of the Holy Spirit. So there are a lot of different gifts. But there's only one Spirit who distributes them. There are many different services, but there's only one Lord. There are many different workings, but in all of them and in every one, there is only one, the same God at work. Now, to each and every one, there has been given the manifestation of the Holy Spirit. To some, they've been given by the Spirit a message of wisdom. To others, by that same Spirit, a message of knowledge. To another, once again, by the same Spirit, And to another, gifts of healing by that same Spirit. To another, miraculous powers. To another, the gift of prophecy. To another, the ability to discern between spirits. To another, the gift of tongues. And to another, the gift of interpreting tongues. But remember, in all of them, the same one God is at work, distributing to each however God determines. For we are all part of one body, even though we're made up of many parts, and all of these parts come together to form one body, just as it is in Christ. We've all been baptized by the same Spirit to form this one body. Whether Jew or Gentile, slave or free, all of us have drunk from the same Spirit. Even so, as one body, it's not just one part, but many parts. So, now, if the foot would say, since I'm not a hand, I'm no longer part of the body, it would not, for that reason, cease to be part of the body. 
Or the ear could say, because I'm not an eye, I'm no longer part of the body. It wouldn't, for that reason, cease to be part of the body. For if all of us were the eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If all of us were the ear, where would the sense of smell be? But God has woven together each one of us as God sees fit. Woven us into one. If we were all the same one part, where would the body be? As it is, we are one body with many different parts. The eye can't say to the hand, I don't need you. The head can't say to the foot, I don't need you. Those parts that we sometimes deem as weaker parts, let me fill you in. They are indispensable to the body. Those parts that seem less honorable, they're simply given more honor. Those parts that seem unpresentable, we give special treatment. But those parts that are presentable don't need any special treatment at all. Because God has designed this whole thing. Giving more honor to those parts that are less honorable so that there will be absolutely no division in the body. But all of us having equal concern for one another caring for one another. As a result, here's what happens. When one part of the body suffers, all the rest of us enter into that suffering. When another part of the body is honored or exalted, we all rejoice in the midst of that. All of you are part of the body of Christ. And all of you have an important part. God gave to the church first apostles, secondly prophets, thirdly teachers. He gave miracles. He gave the gifts of healing. Some he gave the gifts of help. To others, the gift of guidance. Still to others, the gift of speaking in other languages. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Can all perform miracles? Can all perform healings? Can all speak in tongues? Can all interpret tongues? But you seek the greater gifts. So let me tell you about that. Let me talk about the most excellent way. The way of love. Let me use this as an example. If, if I had the ability 
to speak the best of the language of mankind. Or better yet, if I had the ability to speak the language of angels, I didn't have any love, it would just sound like I was clanging cymbals together, making racket noise with brass instruments. If I had the gift of prophecy, and I understood all mysteries, fathomed all knowledge, if I had the gift of faith and I could actually move mountains, but I didn't have love. It's worth nothing. If I gave all I had to the poor, if I went beyond that and I gave my body to hard labor or to the flames so that I might boast, but I didn't have love, I'd gain nothing. But love, love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. Love is not proud. It doesn't boast. Love never embarrasses the other person. Love is not self-seeking. Love isn't easily angered. Love has given up keeping account of wrongs. Love never rejoices in evil, but it celebrates the truth. Love always protects, always trusts. Love always hopes, and love just keeps on persevering. Love never fails. If there are prophecies, they'll cease. If there are tongues, they'll go quiet. If there's knowledge, it'll pass away. I know in part, and I prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, all the rest of that just passes away. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child, but when I grew up, I put away childish things. It's like looking in a glass, like a mirror, except all hazy. But there's going to come a time when it's like being with you, face to face. Now I know in part but then I'm going to be known just like I am. And so are you. These three things remain. Faith, hope, and love. But the greatest 
is love. This isn't an invitation just to be a happy, loving, happy-go-lucky person that flits from opportunity to place to place. It's an invitation to a relationship where Jesus is Lord because God is love. And when we move into that relationship, love begins to transform us in transforming ways. That's the defining characteristic of the body of Christ. Diverse? Oh, yeah. Makes it interesting, doesn't it? (laughs) Different perspectives, different experiences, different looks, different angles. Oh, yeah. But unity, because Jesus is Lord. Let's embark on this adventure of love together. So I invite you. I'm going to ask musicians to come. I know they've got a number that's prepared for the offertory. I'm going to ask that they just do it instrumentally, kind of first go around so that we can spend a few moments in prayer together. You can pray anywhere you want. If somebody wants to come to one of these altars, fantastic. If you want to kneel where you're at, if you just want to be quiet, seated where you are, I would hope you might ask this question, Lord, is there any part of this scripture that opens up a part of my life this morning? Some way in which my week will be different because Jesus is Lord. I invite you to invite the Spirit to guide you this morning. Let's pray together.